years. Okay. Luke chapter 6, verses 27 through 36. But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to anyone, everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners, expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies. Do good to them and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High, because He is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful." This is a weekend where the nation recognizes and honors patriotism and sacrifice and freedom. Certainly there is nothing wrong with love of one's nation. I appreciate that we can meet here without government interference. I appreciate many of the values championed by this nation. This is my home. I love it. There is nowhere else I'd rather be. I am grateful to be here. But in recognizing the benefits of one kingdom, it's important to remember that we hold dual citizenship. We are members of a kingdom much older than the one we physically live in now. We are citizens of a kingdom that was brought into being 2,000 years ago, a kingdom that is breaking into all over the world as we speak now, a kingdom that will one day come in its fullness when the king comes to claim this world as his own, all of this world as his own. And this kingdom has its own values, values I just read on the Sermon on the Mount. What are we to do about these values, especially when they come into conflict with the world's values and the nation's values? And there are conflicts. The world says, hate your enemies. Jesus says, love them, bless them, pray for them. The world says, if somebody takes something from you, go after them legally or violently. Jesus says, don't. The world says if someone strikes you on the cheek, clobber them or sue them or get them arrested. Jesus says, turn the other cheek. If you haven't noticed, this is really unnatural stuff. There was a four-year-old boy who was in the back seat of his family van eating an apple. Daddy, the boy said, why is my apple turning brown? The father responded, because after you ate the outer skin off, the meat of the apple came into contact with oxygen, which caused it to oxidize, changing its molecular structure, thus turning it into a different color. After a silence, the four-year-old little boy said, Daddy, were you talking to me? When I read the words of Jesus I just read from the Sermon on the Mount, that's my response. Jesus, are you talking to me? Because what Jesus is telling us seems totally odds at reality, totally at odds with how the world works, totally at odds with human nature itself. We live in a world rife with evil and conflict and terrorism. 
We live in a world where war is the norm for settling conflicts on an international basis. We live in a world of crime and violence and mass shootings. And I'm supposed to love the perpetrators of such things? I'm supposed to pray for them, bless them, love them? If they come to my house, give them something to eat? Jesus, are you talking to me? I don't want to do that. I want to do the other stuff I see in the movies. I want to do what Clint Eastwood does and, and Arnold does. In fact, these words of Jesus are so troubling and so unnatural. Most theologians and preachers have done their best throughout history to minimize them or explain them away. Surely Christ didn't mean what it sounds like he meant. Some explain these words away by saying Jesus was applying these words for when his kingdom came in its fullness. The ethic of the Sermon on the Mount was Sir Christ's return. The only problem with that interpretation is that after Christ's return, we won't need the Sermon on the Mount. These teachings I just read will be obsolete. When Christ comes, there will be no more violence or face slaps. There will be no more theft where you not only give them your coat but your shirt. There will be no more hate. There will be no more enemies. Obviously, these teachings concern the current human condition. When I get to heaven, I don't have to love my enemies. I won't have enemies. I won't have to forgive people who do bad stuff to me because there will be no evil and bad stuff done to me when Jesus comes back. Another way theologians and others have tried to explain away Christ's teachings that we're looking at today is to restrict what he said only to intensely personal relationships. What Jesus taught could be applied to family or friends or even neighbors or where we work, but certainly you can't apply this in any practical way to criminals and especially to national enemies. The only problem is that Jesus seems to be directly addressing criminal behavior. He's talking about assault and battery. He's talking about theft. He's talking about suing to get your stuff back. Jesus is talking about precisely criminal behavior. And as far as national enemies, Jesus touched on that too. He said if a person tells you to carry their stuff one mile, you carry it too. Israel, by the way, was a conquered and occupied nation. They were done in by the evil empire of their day, Rome, who was comparable to the Nazis of our time or the communists. Rome had invaded them and conquered them. And they were occupying them, and the Jews did not like this one bit. In fact, one of Jesus' disciples, Simon, came out of a fanatical guerrilla movement dedicated to the violent overthrow of Rome. They were called the Zealots. Another disciple, by the way, Matthew, was a tax collector. And tax collectors collaborated with Rome by helping them raise money so that the armies could stay in Israel to oppress the people some more. They were considered traitors, especially by, guess who? Zealots. Don't you know that when Jesus and his disciples gathered around the campfire, got more got roasted than just marshmallows as they sat around those campfires? Getting back to my point, only occupying Roman soldiers could order a Jew to carry their backpacks for one mile. They were the only ones, soldiers from the enemy, and the sons of Israel hated it. I can only imagine the shock among even Jesus' most avid followers when he told them to love 
Roman soldiers and to help their oppressors and to demonstrate it by lugging their gear twice as far as required even by Roman law. I'm sure the zealots were not a big fan of Jesus. And I'm sure they considered him a traitor. Which leads us back to the question, what do Jesus' words mean then? And what do they mean now? What enemies did Jesus say we didn't have to love? What enemies did Jesus say we didn't have to bless? What enemies did Jesus say we didn't have to forgive? What enemies did Jesus say we didn't have to pray for? Surely there must be somebody I can despise and have a clean conscience about it, or at least do the eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth thing with, or take a baseball bat to occasionally. Folks, I've looked long and hard for some kind of loophole, but I can't find any, and I don't like this. Quite frankly, if somebody hurts me or mine, I want the baseball bat option, or at least a nine iron. I have a nine iron. But in the end, guess what? It doesn't matter what I want. What matters is what Jesus wants. Are we not supposed to value what Christ values? Is he not Lord, boss, king, as well as savior? Does he not have the final word on all things? But then he talks like he did in this passage of Scripture. Jesus, you're talking to me? Ultimately, what all this comes down to is who has the final word and the final claim on my life. And the Brethren in Christ and historical Anabaptists, historical peace churches have said, there is only one who ultimately controls my life, and that is not the government. We believe as Anabaptists were called to respect and obey the laws of the government so far as they are just. We believe in paying taxes. We believe in praying for leaders and giving the nation what is due. But we are, as Christians, never to give carte blanche to any government ever. And I know every true believer here knows that and feels that. If the government says, you can't be a Christian... I know every person here would consider it their duty to disobey that law. Because to obey the law that outlaws Christianity would be to make a God out of the state instead of the real God. When countries like Russia and China outlawed the coming together of Christians to worship, Christians in those countries broke the law and they broke it with enthusiasm. When in Acts 4, the rulers and elders in in Jerusalem ordered Peter and John and the New Testament church to stop spreading the gospel and preaching in Jesus' name, Peter responded, Judge for yourselves whether it's right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. For we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. Every one of us has lines where we say to the government, We will obey God rather than you. And anywhere where Christians have not drawn that line, where they have caved into the government completely, we have had Napoleons and Hitlers and Stalins and Mussolinis. And history shows us over and over again that sometimes the embodiment of evil becomes a government. It's governments who do genocide. It's governments who made it legal to hold slaves in America. It is governments that have persecuted the church throughout history. 
For the Christian, I want you to hear this, the government can never be our conscience. Politicians do not tell us how to think and what to believe and what to value. You cannot do that. Only Jesus has the final word. He is the final authority over our lives. Do I love my country? Yes. But I had better love Jesus even more. The question for every one of us here today is where is the line? For historic brethren in Christ, the line has been this. If the government says, kill your enemies, and Christ says, love them, who do we listen to the most? That's where the Anabaptist church drew the line 500 years ago, and they paid a heavy price for it. And as I read the words of Jesus over and over today, that's where I think the line should be drawn, is where Jesus seems to say it should be drawn. In fact, for the first 300 years of the church, that is precisely where the New Testament church drew the line. Those closest to Jesus, those closest to the apostles, those who were tutored by those closest to the fountainhead of the faith, interpreted Scripture and the teaching of Christ in precisely the way you are hearing this morning for the first 300 years. It wasn't until 325 A.D. that things changed when Constantine seduced the church and church and state became one. In other words, Christians were willing to die for their faith. They just weren't willing to kill for it. Now, I know for many here this morning, this is new stuff. And I know there is an honest disagreement among sincere Christians on this subject. And I respect that. The position I've just articulated is not held by the majority of Christians in this world. I have to admit that. As I tell people in membership class, you don't have to hold to pacifism or the historic peace position in order to be a member of this church or to attend this church. For most of us, grasping what I'm talking about will be a journey because it is so new and so unnatural and so counterintuitive, it takes time. It's hard to swallow. What I'm telling you this morning, let me be the first to admit this. What Jesus told us to do is hard to swallow. You talking to me, Jesus? I just want you to know we don't cram this stuff down anyone's throat. We consider that unpeaceful. Nor do we want to. We just ask that you study Jesus' words prayerfully and stay open to the Spirit and at least consider new possibilities. And we ask that you don't get mad at the preacher for preaching on peace occasionally. Remember, I have a nine-iron. I love my nine-iron. I'd never hit you with it. I love that nine-iron. No, you didn't get that at all. All right. And I know that some here have served in the military or who have close family in the military. Let me say a few things that might surprise you. First, I want to say there are many things to admire about the military. The military often turns boys and girls into men and women by teaching them the invaluable life skills of discipline and teamwork and service. The military led the way in racial justice in this country, years ahead of the rest of the country. They have helped people serve by serving in real spots like New Orleans after Katrina and Haiti after the earthquake. And those in the military are willing to sacrifice, to put themselves in harm's way and give their lives for a cause greater than themselves, something I wish more Christians were willing to do. 
Instead of being consumers, we should be sacrificers. Furthermore, some of the finest and most committed Christians I have ever known were in the military. In fact, Jesus himself said the greatest faith he found in all of Israel, in all of the world, resided in the heart of a Roman soldier. We hate war here. We do not hate soldiers here. And a lot of soldiers who have been in war hate war too. You know what I, you know what I find? I find a lot of chicken hawk politicians are far more anxious to go to war than people in the military are. The people who have never fought a war are the ones that seem to get excited about it. The ones who have fought in it are not excited at all. And I am not ashamed or hesitant to call a believer in the military my brother or sister in the Lord. Although we disagree on the history of the church or theology or interpretation, I do not question what is in someone's heart. But having said all that, I still believe Jesus calls us to love our enemies. In today's text, Jesus gives us two reasons why we should love our enemies. One reason is because we are to be merciful just as our Father in heaven is merciful. What does it say? He is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Aren't you glad God is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked? We all qualified for that at one point in our lives. All of us are here today because our Father in heaven is merciful. We all need grace. We all live by grace. Every one of us, every day. We were the enemies of God, Paul says. Aren't you glad God decided to show his enemies mercy? You know, I, I, I read this, and I love it. Ruth Graham, Billy Graham's wife, who, who's gone on to be with the Lord, said one day while they were driving around, she saw what she wanted on her tombstone. It was on a road sign when she and her husband were driving down the interstate. They had gone through miles of construction. They had to slow down, get in single lanes, go through detours. And finally, they came to the end of the construction where Ruth Graham saw the sign that caught her attention. And pointing to it, she said to Billy, Look, that's what I want on my tombstone. And at first he didn't get it, but then he read it more closely and it began to dawn on him. And he smiled. The sign said, End of construction, thanks for your patience. And that is what is on her tombstone. End of construction. Thanks for your patience. We all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. We all have and will mess up before the road trip is over. We all are still under construction. And we need God and we need each other to be patient with us. We all live by grace. And the God who gives us grace so freely, guess what? Expects us to pass it along, even to our enemies. Be merciful, just as your Father in heaven is merciful. He makes the rain fall on the just and the unjust. He makes the sun shine on the just and the unjust. God is merciful to everyone all the time, including people who tell him to go take a hike. Our Father in heaven has trouble 
when we who have received so much mercy fail to pass it on to others. The second reason Jesus tells us to love our enemies is because God wants us to startle the world with his love. When we love those who love us, Jesus said in the text today, big deal. The pagans do the same. The sinners do the same. When we are good to those who are good to us, Jesus says, so what? All kinds of sinners do that. Jesus wants us to take his love to a whole new level so that the world can see God's great heart reflected through us. One of my favorite illustrations, I've used it once, but if you were to ask me what is one of my two or three favorite illustrations I've ever come across, it was by Philip Yancey in his book on rumors. It involves Nelson Mandela and how Mandela taught the world a lesson in grace when after emerging from prison after 27 years and being elected president of South Africa, he asked his jailer, who for years had been his tormentor, to join him on the inauguration platform. He then appointed Archbishop Desmond Tutu to head an official government panel with the daunting name, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Mandela sought to diffuse the natural pattern of revenge he'd seen in so many countries when, where one oppressed group gets the power and they turn around and oppress the people that, who, are, who had oppressed them and seek revenge. For the next two and a half years, South Africans listened to reports of atrocities coming out of the truth and reconciliation hearings. The rules were simple. If a white policeman or army officer voluntarily faced his accusers, confessed his crime, and fully acknowledged his guilt, he could not be tried or punished for that crime. Hardliners grumbled about the obvious injustice of letting criminals go free. But Mandela insisted that the country needed healing more than it needed justice. Wow. Wow. At one hearing, a policeman named Von der Brock recounted an incident when he and other officers shot an 18-year-old boy and burned the body turning it in the fire like a piece of barbecue meat in order to destroy the evidence. Eight years later, Von der Brock returned to the same house and seized that boy's father. And the wife, the mother of that boy and the wife of that man, was forced to watch as policemen tied up her husband, put him on a wood pile, poured gasoline all over him, and lit him on fire. She had to watch her husband become a human torch. We think ISIS just does that kind of stuff. Oh, there's all kinds of people that do that kind of stuff. The courtroom grew hushed as the elderly woman who had lost first her son and then her husband was given a chance to respond. What do you want from Mr. Vanderbrock? She was asked as he was on the stand. She said she wanted Vanderbrock to go to the place where they had burned her husband's body so she could gather up the dust and the soil with his ashes remaining in it and give him a decent burial. His head down, the policeman nodded in agreement. And then she added one further request. She said, Mr. Vanderbrock took all my family from me, but I have a heart full of love to give. Twice a month, I would like for him to come to the ghetto 
and spend a day with me so I can be a mother to him. And I would like Mr. Vanderbrock to know he is forgiven by God and that I forgive him too. I would like to embrace him right now in front of this court so he can know my forgiveness is real. And spontaneously, some in the courtroom began singing, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound! As the elderly woman made her way to the witness stand to hug Vanderbrock. But Vanderbrock was never hugged that day. You know why? Because as she made her way up, and as they were singing Amazing Grace... Vanderbrock, this man who had murdered people in cold blood, this man who had lit people on fire, this man with a heart of stone, he was so overcome by grace that he fainted dead away on the witness stand. Overcome by amazing grace. Yancey said justice was not done in South Africa that day, nor in South Africa during the following months. Something beyond justice took place. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good, said the Apostle Paul. Nelson Mandela and Desmond Tutu understood understood that when evil is done, only one response alone can overcome the evil. Revenge perpetrates the evil. You kill me, I kill you. Justice punishes it, but it doesn't remove it. Evil is overcome by good only if the injured party absorbs it, says Yancey, refusing to allow it to go any further. And that is the pattern of otherworldly grace that Jesus showed in his life and death. Mandela, when he came out of prison, had a choice to make. Life or death for South Africa. War or reconciliation. Jesus' way or the same old way. And to Mandela's everlasting credit, he gave witness to the grace that had touched him. How did Mandela do it? It took 27 years in prison, forgiving his jailers over and over again, forgiving the judges that unjustly sent him there, forgiving the police officers that roughed up him and his family, forgiving the racist politicians. He learned to forgive. It took him 27 years, but the grace of God began to flow through him. And that grace flowed not only into him and to the people around him. It flowed into a nation. It is the grace that is flowing into the world right now. It is the grace that is flowing into this place right now. It is the grace that is changing the world right now. And I need to tell you something. This is the highest form of spiritual power. It takes incredible power for an old woman who lost her only son and her only husband to overcome the pain and grief and still love their murderer. It took power to rise above the desire for revenge. If somebody lit your loved one on fire right in front of you, wouldn't you want revenge? It took tremendous spiritual power to overcome human nature and normal human reactions to do what they did. See, we think spiritual power is miracles and tongues and interpretations and healings and all kinds of spiritual gifts. But the height of spiritual power is when God's Spirit 
overcomes the murder of a beloved child and a husband when his power lifts a shattered, broken heart and fills it with love that embraces and cares for the perpetrator. There is no greater power than that. And God values that so much. Here's an indicator of how much God values this kind of love. The kind of love that loves enemies. He said, if you will love your enemies like this, you will be called the sons and the daughters of the Most High. In biblical times, if you were honest and you were a male, you would be called the son of honesty because that was your essence. If you were a woman and you were kind, you would be called the daughter of kindness because that was your essence. When you show mercy to enemies, love enemies, pray for enemies, bless enemies, what God is saying is you're getting as close to what I'm like as you can get. You are a son and a daughter of the Most High. You want to be called a son and a daughter of the Most High? Love like the Father loves. Forgive like He forgives. Show mercy like He shows mercy. Be kind to the wicked and the ungrateful. And the family resemblance will be unmistakable. You will be called a son and a daughter of the most merciful father who lives in heaven. That makes you like God. What makes you most like God? It's not how many verses you memorize or how often you come to church. What makes you most like God is that you show mercy and show mercy especially to your enemies. Is it hard? Oh, gosh, it's hard. Is it unnatural? Oh, you bet it's unnatural. It's supernatural. You bet it takes Does the it power take of the Holy Ghost, nothing will. less. To love like God loves, you need God and His Spirit to do it. Are we sons and daughters of the Most High? Are we sons and daughters of the Most High? At this time, we're going to partake of communion. And communion reminds us, communion reminds us of how God treated his enemies, us. Aren't you glad that Jesus decided not to kill his enemies? None of us would be here today. None of us would be here today. We were shown mercy. And we celebrate that at this communion we now invite you to come to this table, not because you must, but because you may. Come to testify, not that you're perfect, but that you sincerely love our Lord Jesus Christ and desire to be his true disciple. Come, not because you are strong, but because you are weak. Not because you have any claim on heaven's rewards, but because in your frailty you stand in constant need of heaven's mercy and help. Now that the supper of the Lord is spread before you, lift up your minds and hearts above all fears and cares. Let this bread and this cup be to you the witness of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, the communion of the Holy Spirit. We're going to take communion up front. Please exit on the right-hand side. Come across, take the communion, go back on the left-hand side. You do not have to be a member of this church of the Brethren in Christ to partake of communion. We just ask that you love the Lord. If you're allergic to gluten, at the, uh, some of the plates will have little plastic bags in them that are gluten-free. You may open the bag and take from that. But what you, we want you cognizant of now 
is the grace that has brought us here today, is the love that forgave us while we were afar off, is the forgiveness that has made all of this possible. We, this is a celebration of nothing less than the heart of God towards us this morning. The night when Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, blessed it, broke it, and gave to his disciples. We follow his example. Brothers and sisters, this bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? Take and eat this bread, remembering that he was born to be our Savior. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Feed on him in your heart and be thankful. The night when Jesus was betrayed, he also took the cup, blessed it, and gave to his disciples. We do likewise. Brothers and sisters, this cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? Take this cup, remembering that he said, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it together and be thankful. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for grace and grace upon grace. Thank you for love that is unfathomable to us and totally undeserved. Thank you, Lord, for giving to us not only more than we deserve, but more than we can imagine. Drown us and help us revel in your grace as we remember the price for that grace today. In Jesus' name. Amen.
I'd like the intercessors to come forward for prayer for anyone, for anything. And again, as we sing this last song, let us celebrate and worship the God of all grace, whose grace found us and keeps on finding us over and over and over again. Amen? Let us sing and worship and pray. any inkling, any inkling at all at how much we are loved by the Father and the Son and how much love is available to us now in the Spirit, it would stagger us. Worship would never, ever be a problem again. Gratitude would never, ever be a problem again. Faithfulness would never, ever be a problem again if we could even imagine a smidgen of what the heart of God holds for each of us in this room today. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Let's give him praise. <laughs> Lord Jesus, send us out now. Help us to revel in your grace, live in your grace, eat it up, drink it up, breathe it in, and let it change our lives and the lives of those around us. 
including the lives of our enemies, forever and ever. Amen. So let my deeds on my words and let my Unbroken